0: CHAPTER THREE, KIOWA TRAIL Dick Hardiman was at the herd when we arrived, and he had three hands with him. That spelled something to me. It was getting on to dark and a poor time to start moving a herd, but it did give me an estimate of the feeling in town. Thought we'd pick up the cattle now, Mrs. Lundy, Hardiman said awkwardly. No use of you having trouble of them. It's that bad, is it? "'Trust Kate to see through anything like that.' "'Yes, ma'am, it is.' Hardiman's face was gloomy. "'If I were you, I'd move off away from here "'as soon as ever it gets dark "'and leave a fire going.' "'You think they'll come after us?' Tom was incredulous. "'Whatever for?' "'Aaron MacDonald.' "'Hardiman,' was said dryly, "'is a proud man. "'If he lives to be a hundred, "'he'll never forget that cuffin you gave him, Con. "'You've made an enemy for life.' He had it coming. I agree. He paused, then he asked, "Was that true? Were you with Sheridan?" "Sure, the boys know it." Rand Priest was a Union man too, but as far as we're concerned, the war is over. When they had moved off with the herd, we stood around our fire. Only the, Ramu- the Muda was left—that the chuck wagon and Kate's ambulance. We will do as Herdeman suggested, Kate said. We will move off to that knoll over there. There's a sort of hollow just over the top, and we'll bed down there. I'd like to ride in there, Rule Carson said bitterly, and shoot hell out of the place. That's enough of that, Kate said quietly. We've had enough trouble for this trip. I don't want to take any more empty saddles back to Texas. Nobody's waiting for me, Rule said truncantly. "'There's a bunk at the Tumblebee, and would miss you, Rule,' Kate said, "'and there were several chuckles, for Carson was a man who liked his sleep.' "'Red Mike took up a rifle and moved away from the fire "'to stand watch toward the town. "'Todd Molloy and Delgado went toward the horses "'and bunched them as if for the night, "'lined them up with the knoll "'so their blackness blended with the shadows of the hill.' "'making them invisible from the town. "'Then, very slowly, they drifted the remuda away. "'The sun was scarcely down before the two wagons rolled out, "'and within an hour the move had been accomplished. "'If you ask me,' Red Mike said, "'that Talcott was doing a lot of thinking "'about the gold in that sack, ma'am.' <coughs> "'Kate stood over the small fire that we had built.' well sheltered from view con why don't you let some of the boys sleep right now there's four hours of good sleep before midnight when the men who were standing the first guard had drifted out to their positions kate and i sat over the last coals <clears throat> maybe tom lundy hadn't used good judgment in getting himself in a stew over linda MacDonald, but after all He wasn't the first man to get involved with the wrong woman, and no one could deny that she was pretty. Trouble might have developed without that. When there is so much underlying bad feeling, it takes small reason to start trouble, and in the past, some of the Texas boys, sore over the defeat of the South, had been only too ready to start shooting again, and there were always hotheads ready to shoot back. Men like MacDonald with their precise, narrow way of looking at things, could not know what it meant to a bunch of men, all of them young and full of vinegar, to let off a bit of steam. But the time, they'd been three months or so on the trail north, eating the dust of the drag, chasing strays, fighting Indians, stampedes, and ornery broncs, working from before daylight until after dark, they were ready to let go a little. One time I had heard a cowhand ask what a chuck wagon looked like, and he said, "'How would I know? I never saw one in the daylight.' Moreover, I couldn't find it in me to blame Tom. The good Lord knew I'd done my share in making a fool of myself, and had no patent on the idea either. If MacDonald had just let the thing alone, it would probably have been over by now. As it was, men might die before it was settled.' The night on the plains was a time of quietness. Only a far-off coyote, complaining to the listening stars, caused a faint break in the stillness, and his voice seemed only to make the silence more silent still. The dull red of the coals were a somber light in their small pocket of heat. From time to time their seeking heat seized upon some overlooked bit of dry wood "'and then a tiny blaze would leap up briefly, consuming the wood. "'I'd like us to be moving before daylight,' Kate said, "'and if we pull out toward the west, we can swing wide around the town. "'That way we can avoid trouble, "'and we might see something of that country out there.' "'We sat there, talking quietly, "'but all the while my ears were straining into the darkness, "'listening for sounds I'd hoped not to hear. "'I never knew you were a union man, Con,' Kate said. You never talk much about yourself. You've heard enough stories. But you never know which ones are true. After all, I know nothing of you except that you were a gunfighter or something. You just came riding up when I needed help and you stayed. I wouldn't know what to do without you, Con. That made me feel the fool Kate would get along for there was a resilience in her like fine-tempered steel. She reminded me of Toledo Blade, a rapier I saw once in Spain. She had great strength, but she wasn't rigid, like MacDonald, for example. It was she who had built that ranch, built it from the grass roots up, and it had taken some doing. In my way, I'd helped. There's little enough to tell about me, I said. They'd tell me I was born back on the Rapidian River in Virginia. "'but my folks moved to Texas. "'When I was nine, the Apaches wiped them out "'and carried me into Mexico. "'For three years I was an Apache. "'Then I stole a pony and rode out of the Sierra Madre "'and back to Texas. "'Pa had walked to the spring for a bucket of water, "'and I had taken the axe and was hitting a couple of licks "'at the old mesquite stump in the yard.' It was a big old thing and without stump puller it would be a long hard job getting it out and there was much else to do so Pa left an axe sitting beside it and my time was one that passed we worked at cutting the tap root or other roots to loosen it up. Ma was inside putting up her hair for this was Sunday and when Pa returned from the spring there was to be a Bible reading. It was a fair time for us all for there had been little else but work from the time when Pa first decided to settle on the creek. On Sundays, though, after the Bible reading, Pa and Ma would read from one of the other books we had, and lately I'd taken my turn. I liked best the poems, Marmion or Lochlinvar, but some of the others were good, too, like The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. All of a sudden, Ma called from the house, and there was something funny about her voice. She said, Con, come in here right away, don't argue. The way she spoke scared me, for it wasn't like Ma at all, so I turned and I started for the house, still carrying the axe. Ma had the door open a crack, but the creak of the window swinging out made me look away, and it was just in time to see Pa's rifle thrust through the window and went off with a loud bang. And I turned, looking for what Ma was shooting at, and then there was another bang and the whiff of an arrow, and Ma was dead. Afterward, learning what I did learn, I was glad it happened that way. When I broke and ran for the door, it was already too late, and when somebody came running up behind me, I turned and I swung with the axe. It was caught and wrested from my hand, and I looked up into the face of an Apache. Hours later, when we were over the border in Mexico and heading for the Sierra Madre, I could see the face of my father as I had seen it. When they led me away, we went past the spring, and he was lying there, three arrows in him. One was in his back, the other two in his chest. He had turned and faced whatever it was attacking him. And if he'd had a gun, he might have made a pass at defending himself. Folks had warned him about moving around without a gun. Papa had never seen a live Indian up to then, and he made light of the danger. That was why, my life long, I never went without a gun. They drove off fifty head of cattle, some horses, mules, and a few sheep. The sheep they ate right off because they couldn't keep up, and the mules next because Apaches favor mule meat. It was a far place in the Sierra Madre where they took me, near the head of the the Bevisp River. It was the wildest, most terrible, and beautiful place I have ever seen. We climbed trails I wouldn't have expected a squirrel to climb. Here and there, a steer slipped off the rim and fell on the jagged rocks far below, but the Apaches paid little attention. The Bevisp was a cold, clear stream, running down from a virgin forest of pines it was country that was magnificent in its wildness and grandeur, and there, for three years, I lived like an Apache. and Never once did I take my mind from the idea of escape. Not that I showed it. An old mountain man who had stopped by our place one time said the only way to get along with Indians was to live their life and to do, be a better Indian than they were. So I pitched right in with them, and after a while they tried to help me. By the time I was 12, I was fair tracker, hunter, trapper, and it was I was a better rider than any Apache I'd seen. They were never horsemen in the way the Kiowas or the Comanches were. And then one day, a big war party left on a raid north of the border, and two days after they left, I stole a pony, and, taking a trail I had discovered while hunting, I lit out. East was the way I went. "'deciding they would not expect that. "'For two weeks I lived off the country the way the Apaches did, "'and then I crossed over the Rio Grande, swimming my horse. "'Half-starved, wearing only a breech-clout "'and a stolen coat much too large for me "'and riding a worn-out Indian pony, "'I rode up to a lonely camp not far from the river. "'There were three men in that camp, "'and two of them had guns on me before I could speak.' The third just sat there on the sand and looked at me. Apache, one of the men said. By the Lord, it's an Apache. Sir, I said, my name is Conjury, and I've been a prisoner. All right, old chap, the man on the ground said. Get down and come up to the fire. There's plenty to eat. His name was James Southerton. He was only a few months out of England but he had a period of army service behind him, with service in India and on the northern frontier. When we had eaten, he got my story from me, and had many questions about the way of life of the Apaches, and by the time only that uh, by that time only the Apache could have known it better than I did. And now what? he asked. I must find work, I said, and get some clothing. And an education. Wouldn't you say? Yes, sir. "'Have you no relatives, no friends?' "'None, sir.' "'Well, we can take care of the job right here. "'I'll need help with my stock.' "'One of the others, a big dark man with a beard, interrupted. "'I think about that, Mr. Southerton. "'This boy may have escaped, like he claims, "'or he may be a spy from them redskins.' "'I have thought about it,' Southerton spoke with finality. "'You're hired, Con. Now get some sleep.' The man with the beard was named Morgan Rich, and he was a man I would never forget. Bob Flange was his shadow, and both were hired out to Jim Southerton in San Antonio. What inspired Southerton to take the course he did, I could never guess. But he was headed into the Big Bend country, the wildest country in Texas, which at that date was still 75% wild. "'More than likely it was simply a love of wild country for its own sake "'that headed him into the Big Bend. "'But before long I got the impression "'that Morgan Rich and Bob Flange "'believed he was riding there for another reason. "'It so happened that I knew plenty about the Big Bend country, "'for the Indians, with whom I had been a prisoner, "'traveled that route and knew that country. "'Time and again they had fought the Comanches there,' and when the going got rough, they always knew how to disappear. The Apache, whose prisoner I was, and who seemed to really like me, had told me a good deal about Big Bend. Aside from the pony I rode and the torn piece of blanket, the only thing I had been able to bring away from the camp was a pistol. It was an almost new gun that I had picked off the body of a dead Apache after a fight near the Bevispes. He must have taken it off a body during the fight earlier that day, because nobody went around looking for it after he was found dead, as they would have had they known of it. I had hidden the gun under a rock, and I waited until the time came to make my run for the border. Then I recovered it. The three men and I built a rock hut at the foot of Burl Mesa near a spring, and there we settled down we built corrals, started a small vegetable garden, which it was my job to care for, and hunted wild horses. We caught a few, but most of them were not worth the trouble. Every now and again, we all rode out of there and went to San Antonio. On one of these trips, Morgan Rich and Bob Flange quit. It was after we got back to the ranch that Jim Southerton started my education. Somehow or other, we got on the subject of poetry, and I quoted him some of Marmion, and I recalled from the readings at home, after that there was a change. While I taught him to track and to live off the country like an Apache, he taught me all he could think about English literature, history, and other subjects. At some time or other, he had been an instructor in a military school in England. I think it was Sandhurst and he knew a good deal about teaching. We spent a good bit of time riding over the country, and from time to time we went to San Antonio or to Austin, and then one day to New Orleans. There we went to a bank, and Southerton picked up some money, quite a lot of it, in gold. Then he bought some books and some new equipment, and he bought me a Henry forty-four rifle. It was the day after we got back to the place at the foot of Burro Mesa that I found the tracks, and they were not Apache tracks. Somebody had been around the place while we were gone. Every man's track is distinctive. A man's trail is as easily recognized as his signature. In my own mind, I was sure one of the men whose tracks I saw was Morgan Rich. When I told Southerton what I thought, he merely nodded and made some comment to the effect that the men probably come back hunting a job. Maybe they would show up again. I felt sure that Rich had thought Southerton was hunting Spanish treasure. Gold. And I found out later that when we came back from New Orleans, where nobody knew we had been, and Jim started spending gold money around, Rich and Flange had heard about it. "'If anything ever happens to me,' Southerton told me one time, "'you mail this letter.' "'He hid the letter behind a loose brick in the wall, "'and I thought no more about it. "'It was shortly after we returned from New Orleans "'that Southerton sent me out to check on a water hole "'to see if wild horses had been drinking there. "'It was a long ride, and when I got back, it was almost night. "'There had been three of them this time, "'Morgan, Rich, Bob Flange, and a stranger.' and what they had done to Jim Southerton was worse than Apaches would have done. They must have had it in their minds that he had found Spanish treasure, and they had tortured him to make him tell, which, of course, he could not. The gold he had had been taken. His guns were gone, his outfit and mine, as well as the horses. The way it looked, they had come up shortly after I left, and of a sudden it came over me that they might, be still about. So I grabbed up what I could and hightailed it for the hills, where I waited until daybreak. Then I made a wide sweep. They were gone, all right. They had headed out of the country toward San Antonio. I went back to our place, and when I had buried Mister. Southerton, I followed them. But first, I took the letter from its hiding place, and when I reached San Antonio, I mailed it. A few days later, I located a man. "'who had seen three men headed northeast. "'And I went in that direction they had taken, "'picking up their trail and holding it, "'until I came up to their camp on the Leon River. "'Only one man was in the camp, "'and leaving my horse tied, "'I walked up to the camp holding my six-shooter in my hand. "'When I came through the brush, "'I saw that it was Bob Flange "'squatting beside a fire with a coffee-pot on. "'You killed Mr. Southerton,' I said.' As I came up behind him, his shoulders hunched, as if I'd hit him with a stick. And then he turned his head around slowly to get a look at me. He got to his feet. Now see here, boy, he said. You don't know what you're talking about. That's his rifle there. Those are his horses. Picketed yonder. He was figuring his chances on going for his gun and wondering whether he could get into action before I did. You murdered him, I said. You tortured him. That gold you stole he got in New Orleans. I was with him there. There's a treasure, Flange said insistently. What else was he doing down there in that country? He liked wild country, I said. You killed a man, a good man, with no better reason than a foolish thought that he might know where there was gold. His manner was growing confident. What do you figure on doing, boy? If you want some of the gold, he reached into a shirt pocket and took out a bright gold piece. You can have this. He spun the gold coin into the dust. Like a fool, I looked down at it, and he drew and he shot at me, only in too much of a hurry, and he missed. I didn't. I picked up that gold piece, and I took whatever else of gold was in his pockets, because it wasn't rightfully his, and I might need it to trace the other men. Whatever was left, I would send to Mr. Southerton's folks in England. "'Then I took the horses and rode to the fort "'and went to the commanding officer. "'He looked up from his desk when the corporal showed me in. "'What can I do for you, young man?' "'My name is Conjury,' I said, "'and three men murdered my boss. And then I told him the whole story. "'I ended it by saying, "'I came up with the one of them this morning. "'He's in this camp down on the Leon River. "'We will go get him,' the captain said. "'No need to take anything down there but shovels,' I said. "'I already saw him.' "'He looked at me very carefully and then said, "'And the other 2 "'I'm setting after them. "'From my pocket I took three hundred dollars in gold. "'This is stolen gold. "'It was in his pockets. "'I also brought in ten head of stolen horses "'that belonged to Mr. Southerton. "'I figured you might send this gold back to his family in England "'and dispose of the horses for them.' He sat back in his chair and looked at me. How old are you, son? Fifteen, I said. But I've been doing man's work. So I see. From the pile of gold he counted out sixty dollars. You will need some money if you expect to follow those men. You realize, of course, they will try to kill you. Yes, sir, but Mr. Sutherland treated me well. He paid me, he gave me as much education as he had time for, and no man should be treated as they treated him. "'Captain Edwards rose from his desk and walked outside with me. "'You have that address?' "'Yes, sir,' I handed it to him. "'He glanced at it, then looked at it again, "'and something about it seemed to surprise him. "'I see,' he said. "'So that is who your Mr. Southerton was. "'James Southerton, Major James Southerton. "'Studied the address. "'A very distinguished man, my boy, from a very distinguished family.' We walked to the corral, where I left my horses, and he selected two of them, after a glance at my own horse. They were the two finest of the lot. You take those horses, he said. I will give you a letter showing right of possession. He also gave me the weapons I had brought in Mr. Flange's camp. I shall write to his family, Captain Edwards said. Then he went on. Did he ever mention his family, or anything else? Never, sir. Let me know what happens. The captain hesitated a moment, and then he said, This is a remarkable coincidence. As a young officer, I know your Major Sout- Southerton. He was a military attache during the war with Mexico. Two weeks later, I found out who the third man was. He was Frank Hastings, a scalp hunter, a man whom I had never seen. When I came on Morgan Rich, it was late in Las Vegas, New Mexico. More than six months later,